Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Wild and Woke Podcast. This is episode 38. Today, we're going to talk about the bizarre murder of Arliss Perry and the mystery surrounding the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. So I'm going to go first. I'm excited. What is your topic this week? Um, It's the bizarre death of Arliss Perry. Okay. But before I get started on that, I do want to say I decided on like kind of impulsively today to do a mini series for Patreon. Okay. Okay. I like and, it. Yeah. It's going to be cults, like not well-known cults. I love cults. The one I'm researching right now is, uh, it's called Realism. Have you ever heard of that? I don't think so. It's pretty crazy. It's a UFO-based religion. I'm excited about this. Yeah, so um, that's the first one I'm going to do. And then I just watched a documentary called The Children of God, which was made in like the 90s. That one I know about. Oh my God, that one's crazy. Did you see the documentary? I I think there's maybe more than one, but I think I've seen the one that you're talking about girl that's wild but anyway so yeah i'm gonna do that and hopefully have something up sometime next week but right now i'm gonna talk about arliss perry so arliss perry is a female i'm pretty sure that's how you say her name a-r-l-i-s that's how i mean i would think that's how you say it yeah She's a female. She was born February 22nd, 1955. She was tragically murdered at just 19 years old. So Arliss grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota, and this is where she met. I just love how I say North Dakota. I've never really had to say that before. (laughs) I've never had to say that out loud before. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) I've never even met anyone from either of the Dakotas. Have you? Um, you know, I think I knew some people who at least lived in North Dakota because there's an Air Force base in Minot and Abilene has an Air Force base. So you end up knowing people that have lived places that are, have Air Force bases. Oh yeah. I didn't know that about, uh, Abilene. Abilene. Thank you. Yeah. Dias is a pretty huge, I mean, I don't know how we're like, if we were to get into some sort of a nuclear issue, we probably wouldn't have to worry because we would go first. <laughs> Jesus, that's horrible. But I guess I don't know. I'm kind of okay with it. Kind of a relief, I guess. I, you know, if that's look, if we're in that situation, like I don't want to end up like I don't I don't want to be dealing with fallout. Like either I want to be really far away so I don't deal with it, or I want to be like right there so I don't deal with it. Yeah, if we're gonna go tragically like that, I want to go fast. Fast, exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. So back to the story, <laughs> because that's what we do. Arliss grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota, and this is where she met her high school sweetheart. His name was Bruce Perry. The couple went separate ways for college. They did stay together. Um, they made the relationship work through long distance. So because they were doing long distance in the 70s, it was really taxing. All they had were letters and phone calls. They didn't have FaceTime or any of the technology that we have today. Bruce moved 1,500 miles away to Palo Alto. I think that's how you say that. Palo Alto. 
I think it's Palo Alto. Yeah, California to attend Stanford University, and he was going to study pre-med. Arliss stayed back in North Dakota, and she attended a local junior college, and she worked at a dentist office to save money for the future that her and Bruce were planning. So Arliss was a devout Christian. She not only attended church, she also worked there, and she helped spread the word in her local community. The pair decided the summer of 1974 that they couldn't do long distance anymore, and they actually got married in Bismarck. They immediately moved back to California so that Bruce could continue his pre-med studies at Stanford. So while Bruce was attending his sophomore year at Stanford, Arliss was working as a receptionist at a law firm. The couple moved into a residence hall for married couples, which was a thing back then, I guess. Crazy. My parents lived in married student housing when they were first married. Stop. <laughs> I wonder if that, that's probably not a thing anymore. But that's crazy. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, probably it should be. I don't know. You shouldn't. I mean, I think it was different when my parents or your parents were young, but like college kids, they should not be getting married. (laughs) Yeah. But what about, I mean, what about people who are in school that aren't college age, but like it's expensive to go to school. That's true. It is. So they moved into this new residence hall for married couples and they kind of just focused on their new marriage and building their life together. Bruce had an extremely heavy workload as a student. He was in pre-med study, so he was obviously just, his nose was always in a book, and he was always working hard. So Arliss spent a lot of time alone. She was by herself. She often walked the campus and the surrounding areas. And because of that, she eventually stumbled upon Stanford Memorial Church, which is where she became a frequent visitor because she was a devout Christian. And she she, she just felt comfortable in a church that was like, That was who she was. So it was extremely comforting um, for Arliss because they were in this new city, 1,500 miles away from everything she had known for her 19 years she'd been alive. It was also a drastic change in scenery. So the pair was coming from a super conservative state to a town in California that had fully embraced the flower power movement. So I think that finding this church for Arliss meant that she could potentially find a community of people that she felt comfortable being around. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so she was excited to find it. On October 12, 1974, the couple decided to go for a walk together. Instead of just the usual scene of Arliss walking alone, Bruce felt he kind of needed a short break. He was tired of the constant studying. He wanted to take a walk with his wife. Eventually, they started to bicker a little bit about whose responsibility it was to check on the tire air pressure, which seems like such a newlywed thing to do. Okay. First of all, sir, it is your responsibility. There are many things as an empowered woman that I will do, but I do not want to deal with my tire pressure. (laughs) Especially in the (laughs) seventies. You take out the trash, you check the tire pressure. Come on. That's, that's good. Um, So, yeah, that's what they started bickering about, like the littlest thing ever. And it was just a silly argument. But Arliss kind of decided that she wanted to continue the walk on her own. She told Bruce that she was going to head down to Stanford Memorial Church to go pray by herself. So that was her punishment to him, I guess. Like, oh, you can't (laughs) pray with me. You you may not pray with me. (laughs) You may go home. (laughs) They were out for a pretty late walk. So they parted ways just before midnight. I think it was like around 1130. Bruce went back to the residence, which was only about a mile away from the church. 
Arliss arrived at the church around 1135. There were two witnesses who were already there praying, and they say that Arliss came in and she made her way to the front and found her seat and started praying. The security guard that was in charge of, and this church was on the Stanford campus, so he was a security guard that worked for the university who was just in charge of the church. His name was Stephen Crawford. He told the church guest, and at this point there were three, the two witnesses and Arliss, that he was going to be closing and locking the doors in 15 minutes, which was 1145. 3 a.m., Bruce decided enough was enough. He was really concerned with his wife's well-being. He thought, well, maybe she fell asleep in the church and she's locked in there. And, you know, he he had no idea because it was 3 a.m. Right. So he called the police and the police went to the church to check on Arliss and they found that all the doors were locked. So they just like they just left. (laughs) They're like, well, your wife's gone, I guess. Sorry, she's missing, but she's not in the church. So we're going to head out. 5.40 a.m., the police received a call from Stephen Crawford, who was a security guard, and he said he had found the body of a woman near the altar in the church. Stephen also told authorities he found the west entrance to the church open when he arrived. Arliss was found lying face up. She was naked from the waist down. According to the dean of the chapel, his name was Robert Kelly, he said upon examining the body to see if he could identify her, he noticed a two three-foot-long white candles that were a part of the crime scene. Immediately, and especially since this was during the satanic panic time I guess that was kind of going on already, wasn't it? Yeah, so people who were working this crime scene kind of automatically assumed, like, this is a satanic ritual gone bad or just (sighs) Satanism was involved (laughs) somehow. With the candles, one had been shoved up her blouse and between her breast, and the other was actually inserted into her vagina. She'd been strangled, and she had an ice pick that was still in her skull behind her left ear. I mean, it was, it was well, like the satanic panic thing is obviously like that went got way out of hand, but you can kind of see why they b- were like, this has got to be ritual. Well, and the fact that it's in a church, like right up next to the altar, right. she's face up. It just seems odd. The authorities really didn't know what kind of suspect they were dealing with. They figured it would have to be someone who had a previous sex-related charge or just some kind of sexual deviant. And they also found a church pillow with semen on it near her body. But at this time, they could not test. We didn't have DNA at that point. We didn't have DNA at that point. So they just kind of kept it. It was was filed with the evidence. (laughs) Yes. Okay, so immediately the detectives go to the married couple's apartment and they want to question Bruce because he was the last person that was seen with her besides the two witnesses. When they show up, Bruce is covered in blood. Okay, but it's not her blood. It's his own from a nosebleed. He said he gets nosebleeds really often when he's stressed. And they, I mean, they took the blood and they tested it and they found that it was his own. He had no trace of his wife's blood on him. He passed a polygraph test and they could not find any evidence linking Bruce to his wife's murder. So they were like, okay, well, you're good. You're, you're free to go. The police focused. The kitten is behind me playing with crinkly plastic. I can't hear it. I can't hear it. Oh good. I'm so glad I'm like, I'm like gesturing at him. He's just going about his day. Totally ignoring me. That's like my cat when she's, can you see her behind me? I do see her. She's just like perfectly sleeping. Meanwhile, 
Well, you can't see him right now for one thing because that window's dark and he's dark, but also he's got the crinkly plastic and he's jumping up and down. He said, fuck your podcast. (laughs) I was really hoping that that noise wasn't coming through, but then I couldn't not laugh. (laughs) No, I can't hear it. So hopefully if you guys hear a little crinkling, you know what it is. Sorry, that's Ozzy. Who he is. I don't know. (laughs) So they cleared Bruce. The police focus on the crime scene. And the story that Stephen Crawford gave them about closing up and finding Arliss. According to Stephen, he closed up roughly around 11.45 p.m. He checked back on the church at 2 a.m. and then found her at 5.40 a.m. So the police were there between the times that he left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all the doors were locked. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. The police believe that she had been attacked around midnight, but suffered for hours and hours. And I mean, they they kind of even believe that, like, when the police came to check to see if she was there, you know, when Stephen checked back at 2 a.m., her attacker was in there with her and she was she was being tortured. The west door that Stephen had found open upon returning to the church was actually open from the inside, which means her attacker likely had stayed the whole night or at least until 2 a.m., at least until after 2 a.m. when Stephen came to check on the church for the first time. That's what police are kind of putting together as the timeline. Makes sense. Yeah. So police and people in the community ultimately thought the crime scene was related to satanic rituals. And according to a book by Maury Terry, who kind of wrote about this a little bit, the book is called The Ultimate Evil. Arliss's murder they thought at the time was tied to the son of Sam killings. Oh, yeah. Okay. That that was, you know, kind of happening around that time. Yeah. So the police dug a little bit deeper and found that was not the case. Um, They actually interviewed David Berkowitz because he had been writing some letters and the letters mentioned Arliss's murder. They just kind of talked about it, not specifically just kind of about the murder, so that's why they originally believed he was involved, but he, um, they don't really give any details about why they know he's not involved. I mean, I know there were a lot of things that Berkowitz talked about that Mm -hmm. like he was, there was evidence that he was other places when it happened. So I'm just going to guess that this is probably one of them. Yeah, I think so. They couldn't find any evidence. They they had no idea. They let Bruce off because the blood was not his wife's. So from 1974 to 2018, which is 44 years, the case remained unsolved. Come 2018, thanks to DNA testing and advancements in solving cold cases, the case was actually solved in June of 2018. It took oh, wow. 44 years. Yeah. And they did this by discovering uh, by the semen on the church pillow. And then they found a handprint on one of the white candles. And they found that Stephen Crawford had committed the murder. I knew it. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they wouldn't push that further. But I'm going to kind of talk about him and his um, his background a little bit. But to me, that would have been like one of the main people to look at and to question. I mean, it seems like that's the most obvious answer that i mean the police he was there before the police were there the police get there everything's locked there's no evidence she's there mm-hmm. and then at 5 a.m he's like oh this this door is just open i don't know yeah it's very it was all very fishy 
On June 28, 2018, police gathered what they needed and went to arrest Stephen Crawford. But before they could arrest him, he killed himself in front of police. And at this point, this man is elderly. I mean, because like 44, he's got he's got to be at least in his 70s. I don't remember. His I mean, age. he would have to be at least mid 60s because he would have had to have been at least in his 20s. I mean, he you could know what? have I been in his 20s. I think he was. I think he was in his early to mid 20s from what I'm remembering in the articles that I read. So well, yeah, he's just who you want guarding things. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a little bit about his background. He was a military veteran and he began his work as a police officer at Stanford University in 1971. So a year after he was hired on as a police officer, they had um, kind of, I guess, new management come in and they started making changes and rearranging things. And they told basically two thirds of the police officers on the campus that they weren't allowed to carry guns anymore. And those police officers were made into security guards. So they, they kind Mm. of got like a, what is it when you're promoted, but back a demotion, a demotion. Thank you. They kind of got a demotion in that. And kind of an ego slap too. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I mean, that's exactly what happened with Stephen Crawford. He was pissed. He took it personally um, and kind of held a grievance against the university. So he began stealing from the university. He stole books. He eventually made a fake diploma that said that he had graduated from there. And he did that in one of the university's print shops. So he was just a little, it was a little weird. A little out there. He stopped working for the university in 1976, and he was arrested in 1992 um, for all the stolen goods from the university. Oh, wow. So due to his growing hatred for Stanford, investigators believe, because they don't know because he killed himself, so they could not sit down right. and talk to him about this. But what, what they think is that the crime was not against Arliss herself, but the crime was directed at the university, and she just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I'm sure even though she was in the wrong place at the wrong time, he did target her because she was young. He sexually assaulted her. I mean, he well, got he would have seen her before it. and seen her there by herself. So yeah. he probably, you know, assumed that he might've made assumptions about whether or not somebody would notice that she was missing. You know, he might've thought he had more time, but he got away with it for 44 years. So he was he able to live his full life. Which is just yeah. sick. Um, so Arliss's mother was in her 80s when this happened, and she she was still alive. Um, what's sad is that Arliss's father had died just three months before they found out, oh, and he had to live awful. with that. Yeah. Um, she does have three other siblings, and they kind of talked a little bit about this when in 2018 when it was solved, and said that really for them. It, it's a huge relief because they they knew Arliss was gone all this time, the 44 years, but they just, they had no closure. They never knew. Yeah. And I mean, even still now, I would think that knowing that Crawford killed himself, that's still not the closure that you want. But they have a little bit of closure now. Definitely not. But I mean, at that point, probably just knowing is the only thing that, I mean... The fact that, like, what were they going to, like, what was he going to get punished with? Have to go to prison? For the rest of his short life. Right. I mean, at that point, it's kind of like, well, it's such a moot point. Like, like almost nothing would matter. No, but that is, um, <laughs> I hear that. Is it just the paper? 
no, I got that away from him. I don't know what he's doing now. He said, it's crackhead hours, mom. (laughs) I guess so. It's okay. You guys have to know that we have animals and sometimes they make noise. And we're not in a studio. This is not professional. (laughs) And, you know, cats. Meanwhile, meanwhile, your cat is like the picture of little kitty perfection back there just sleeping away. Yeah, but she's been doing this for hours. So that means when I go to sleep, she's going to be <laughs> wide ass away. What she does, which is really annoying, is she gets up on my I don't, she sleeps on my pillow every night, which is fine, even though she's very chunky and gets more pillow than I do. But she As I'm going to sleep, she gives herself a bath on my pillow. And I keep, like, reaching my hand back there and, like, smacking her. And she'll stop for a second. And then she'll be like. She's like, no, no. I'm sorry. This is my time. (laughs) It's me time. It's me time, Mom. I swear she does that on purpose. Uh, But anyway, that that was the case of Arliss Perry. And I just, I randomly found it. And I actually did not know it was solved when I started it. And then I started to, like, Google it. And I found some old articles. Um, and I was like, holy fuck, this is solved. So that's so fun to find out, like, in the midst of researching it that it's solved. <laughs> I know, because all the articles that I found were from when this happened or, you know, a few years after it happened. And, of yeah. course, they had no fucking idea. And then I just saw this one from 2018. It was like, solved, 1974 case. I was like, fuck yeah, that's a, a that's gem, a hidden awesome. gem. I think I've heard some of the details before. Or maybe I've just seen, like, there are so many shows that use real-life cases. I feel like I've seen bits and pieces of that. Like, I want to say Criminal Minds has this tucked in it somewhere. But I'm, now I'm not sure. I've never seen Criminal Minds, and I feel like I'm missing out. So I haven't finished watching it Yeah. Um, because I was way late, but everything that I've seen of it, I love it. Is that the one with the guy and people on TikTok are always talking about his hands and how he's, like, got hot hands? I don't know. I don't know that I've seen that. And now I have to look at the cast of Criminal Minds real quick. I mean, we are at our pre at our mid-show break. I'm so. <laughs> our mid-show break. I'm going to have my mid-show sour raspberry Kool-Aid. Ooh. Wait, what? Is that child. like a pouch? Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, his name is Matthew Gubbler. Yes, Matthew Gray Goobler. Goobler. <laughs> I think. Or maybe it is Gubbler. Gubbler. I don't, now know. I don't know. But yeah, people are always talking about how hot he is and you can he come is, for me all you want, but I don't think he is. I think he's adorable. Yeah. Like there you he's, go. I think he's cute, but he's not like, I don't know. He's too much. He looks too much like a little kid. Yeah. Still. That's I mean, he just has a baby guy. face. Mm-hmm. His character though is one of my favorites. And so the reason that I started watching that show actually the reason I even realized that I had never seen that show is I read a quote that was from him. And I was like, I don't know who this person is, but I'm pretty sure he's my spirit animal. And my best friends were like, how the fuck have you not seen Criminal Minds? Because he's on Criminal Minds. Damn. And the quote is, one foot in the darkness, one foot in a Hello Kitty roller skate. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and I was like, 
I don't know who he is, but I love him. And they're like, you must watch this show. Where do you watch it? Like, what is it on? Is it on Hulu? I think it's on Netflix. Netflix. Okay, cool. Yeah, I might start that because I just finished The Office for probably the 30th time. The millionth time, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, you know what? I need to branch out. So you know what I did? I turned on New Girl. And I've watched New Girl at least 10 times. (laughs) I have no life. I, New Girl was not my thing. Really? I don't like, I don't like Zoe Deschanel. I think she's horrible, but I love the the men on the show. I don't just like her, but she's a little bit too, like, committed. Sorry, now I have Kool-Aid on me. Kool-Aid titties. Kool-Aid titties. Sour rats. Shocking. Oh, they're shocking blue raspberry Kool-Aid titties. Oh, shit. I kind of like Zoe Deschanel, but at the same time, she's like, it seems like she's committed to be the in real life Manic Pixie Dream Girl. <laughs> That's so specific, but and so it's a accurate. little much. <laughs> I hate her character. I mean, she's some. It's not all bad, but mainly because I can't stand little flighty girls like that. Manic Pixie Dream Girls. There you go, Manic Pixie Dream Girls. This is a trope. If you've never read about Manic Pixie Dream Girls, you should definitely Google this. I have never, so I'm going to right now. I have so many fucking tabs up. Hold on. One, two, three, <laughs> four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I have fourteen tabs open. That's I have multiple awesome. tabs open and multiple windows. I have two windows. <laughs> <laughs> We're a little out of control. Man. Okay, so I'm going to add Criminal Minds to my list. And now I'm going to look up Manic Pixie Dream Girl. God, that came up fast. Mm-hmm. She was literally the first one that popped up. <laughs> also, Natalie Portman? I don't get that. Mm-hmm. I don't get that vibe from her. I, I can see how some of her characters... Maybe. Oh, it said, yeah, right here it says her character in Garden State, which I never saw. Did you see that? I didn't see that either. Man, I'm going to have to read about that in my, my downtime. You will enjoy this. What are you talking about? Or do you want to keep talking? We can keep talking. Oh, no. I, we can. Hold on. Let me. No, I'm not going to do it. It's going to make the slurpy noise. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'll do it later. Well, ASMR. And now my tongue is blue. <laughs> it's okay. Nobody can see it. It's true. But now you guys know anyway. Unless you want to pay for it. Unless you want to pay for it, and then you can see my blue top. <laughs> and you can witness cat antics. You can. It's so worthwhile, you guys. <laughs> so um, my topic is Jimmy Hoffa. What was that? Was that your cat? What? Oh, no. The neighbor's kids are playing outside. I was really hoping that would not get loud enough that you could hear it. Oh, my God. Fuck them kids. <laughs> yes. That should be our podcast, like, little, little tagline. tagline. Also, fuck them kids. <laughs> um, I can edit that out. I just, I thought it was your cat because it sounded like a cat scream. No, they're playing basketball. Go to bed, y'all. It is nine o'clock at night. Damn. <laughs> it is a weekend. It's past my bedtime. (laughs) Okay. Jimmy Hoffa. I know nothing about Jimmy Hoffa. So here's the thing. I sort of realized that I didn't either, which is why we're going to start at the end of this story and then circle back to the beginning and make our way back to the end again. 
my god it sounds like a wild ride i'm here for it <laughs> it is it is a wild ride hopefully i stay awake um, i think you can keep me awake though i think so so the end of this story is july 30th 1975 around 2 p.m Jimmy Hoffa is at a Detroit area restaurant called the Matches Red Fox, waiting to meet two mafia capos, um, Tony Giacalone and Tony Provenzano. The meeting was supposed to be a reconciliation between old friends, and reportedly the meet was set up by Hoffa himself about two weeks prior during a meal with the Giacalones, who agreed to bring Provenzano to the second meeting. That all those names make me hungry for pizza and really good pasta. Oh my God. The best pasta. Okay. I know that we have a minute in between our, our (laughs) takes for this, but really quick, if you do, if you have not gotten on HBO max and watched calm, you know, the app, there's a subscription to it. It's calm. And it's like all the voiceovers. They have a show on HBO max and rich and I have been binging that and so we watched three episodes the other night, and I slept so fucking hard. And one of them was about that. noodles. That sounds, I don't know, can I sleep through noodles, or am I just going to wake up hungry? I think you can sleep through it. And then there okay. was one about, like, the forest and about sea turtles. It's just about the most random shit, but it's some, it's actors and actresses doing a voiceover, and that shit is so yeah. calming. My parents have sleep stories, and I told them, I literally today told them that I'm going to take sleep stories away from them if they don't stop reciting random bits of trivia at me because of sleep stories. <laughs> like, y'all are going to get grounded from this. <laughs> but that it's basically street sleep stories, but on HBO Max. So go check it out if you haven't. I definitely will. The and also, just reminded me HBO Max, if you would like to sponsor us, we're here for that. Definitely here for that. <laughs> Definitely here for that. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. So by 2.30, Jimmy is still waiting. He crosses the street to use the payphone at a hardware store to call his wife. First, he asks her, has anybody called to change the meeting time or place, to postpone, whatever. She hasn't heard from anybody. He tells her that he thinks the Tonys have stood him up and he's not happy about it. And he's he has some errands to run. He'll be home soon. Two witnesses reported having recognized Hoffa, stopping to chat with him in the parking lot, and that he was that afternoon he was described as appearing to be waiting for someone, pacing near his car. Additional witnesses reported having seen Hoffa get in a maroon car that they said was could be a Lincoln, could be a Mercury, along with three other men. Sometime after 2.30, but before 3 p.m. Hoffa was never seen nor heard from again. The following morning, around 7 a.m., his wife calls their children to let them know that their father didn't come home the night before. Someone also informs Hoffa's friend and associate, Louis Lento, who knew that knew he knew where Hoffa was supposed to be meeting people. He goes to the restaurant and finds that Hoffa's car is still parked at the Red Fox. By 7:20 a.m. he's there examining the car. The car is unlocked. There are no signs of a struggle and there's no indication of where Hoffa might have gone. Nevertheless, even though there's no evidence of any kind of crime, Lento calls the police. They respond to the location of the car. And ultimately, in the process of this, the Michigan State Police are brought in and the FBI is informed. 
At 6 p.m., James, Hoffa's son, officially files a missing persons report. The family also offers a reward of $200,000 for any information leading to Hoffa's recovery. The ensuing search was extensive, as was the investigation to follow. Um, Giacalone and Provenzano both provided ironclad alibis. Many people attached to organized crime were ultimately interviewed, but no arrests were made, nor was any trace of Hoffa ever found dead or alive. That, more or less, is what I knew about this story. Who kind was of Jimmy Hoffa? Like, was he just a mob guy? We're going to get there. Okay, okay. Not exactly. Um, basically, what I knew about him going in is that he disappeared. There was some sort of mafia connection and no one's ever found him. So right. the question is, how did we get here? So we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of his life and come back to where he disappears without a trace. Okay. So James Riddle Hoffa was born in Indiana in 1913 on Valentine's Day. He was just seven years old when his father died of a lung disease, which was likely caused by his work in coal mines. His family moved to Detroit in 1924, where he would live for the most of the rest of his life. I think that there was some time um, that he was actually also in D.C., but I don't know that he ever lived there. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time he was 14, Jimmy had left school in order to work full time and help his mother su- support their family. He worked on a loading dock for the Kroger grocery chain. And even at such a young age, he found fault with poor treatment and wages of workers. By age 18, he had organized his first strike, which he won. Such an Aquarius thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. And I didn't even think about that. Yeah. In 1932, he left the grocery chain partially as a result of his union activities And partially because he said he refused to work for a specific foreman who he said was abusive. At that point, he was invited to become an organizer with the local 299 of the Teamsters in Detroit, which is a pretty big union. Mm -hmm. Um, Even at the time, it became bigger. His decision to become an organizer with them would impact the rest of his life. Union work in the 30s at the height of the Depression was extremely dangerous and frequently resulted in violent and even deadly clashes both against police and against hired union investors. In 1936, he married his wife, Josephine, who he had met that same year at a non-unionized strike action. At this point, the Teamsters Union of Truck Drivers and Warehouse Workers had approximately 170,000 members. Partially as a result of Jimmy's involvement in organization, that number would be 420,000 after um, over a period of about the following three years. So the Teamsters were already one of the most powerful unions in the U.S. By the time Hoffa took over as president, which was in the mid 50s, they had over a million members and were operating on a nationwide scale. During this time, Being successful at high-ranking positions within a trucking union meant that you did a lot of work side-by-side with organized criminals. Members of organized crime? The mob. Whichever way we want to say this. (laughs) (laughs) Starting in Detroit, Hoffa needed to make accommodations as well as agreements with many mafia members who had influence over trucking unions, if not outright control in some instances. 
the mafia's help was also very needed in physical clashes that they found themselves in, again, with police and union investors. Being president of the Teamsters meant that Hoffa was in complete control of the union's pension fund. This put him in a unique position of being able to loan money to the mob. Not legally, of course. No, no, no. But legally. quietly. Of course, going to him to get loans was a lot more beneficial for the mob than going to a bank and having to provide all of the paperwork that would be needed for that. So this is this becomes a symbiotic relationship pretty much until it suddenly isn't. You could say that Hoffa didn't build Las Vegas, but he did fund it. Because this is during the time period that the particularly the Genovese crime family, but others as well, are putting money into building up Las Vegas, which was almost exclusively built by mafia. I didn't know early Vegas. Oh yeah. Early Vegas is, was very much um, built by mafia controlled by mafia. They loved to play there. A lot of them were East coast. Vegas had better weather. Mm -hmm. Um, They could create an oasis, you know, oasis kind of conditions with, you know, all the fancy pools and fancy hotels. So yeah, it was definitely Vegas was very mobbed up. I mean, Vegas is probably still pretty mobbed up. I was going to ask, do you, for me. The, do you think the mob is still like a really big thing? You know, I don't know much about the mob. I short answer is yeah. I don't think yeah. maybe in the same, like I think they've had to adapt as far as how they operate, but um, I don't think they're, I don't, I don't think they just went away. No, I don't think so either. I think, I think, they're, I think they're definitely, I think it's just a little bit different the way that, the way that things are run. I mean, things were run even in, at this point, you know, things with the mafia are being run differently than they were in the twenties and thirties. Chicago mafia, you know, when Chicago mafia was a kind of the quintessential mafia, I guess. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think they're probably still around. I think they're just really good at adapting. I believe that. Uh, yeah. So he's loaning money to the mafia and it's a symbiotic relationship because they're, they're actually making more money on those loans than they would have. Because when you run a pension fund, the idea is that the union members money goes into the pension fund and then it has to be invested and it can be invested in any number of things, but Mafia paying back their loans was actually a greater return on investment than a lot of the above board investments that they might be making. Mm -hmm. So he's making a lot of money for the pension fund and he's keeping the mob guys happy. So everybody's pretty well working together at this point. Yeah. Um, In fact, he was reelected again twice. So he had three consecutive terms as president of the Teamsters in spite of the fact that criminal investigations into his activities started the first year of his presidency, which was in 1957. Wow. Um, in 1964, Hoffa successfully brought nearly all truck drivers under the National Master Freight Agreement, which was a huge undertaking and pretty much his crowning achievement as a union organi- organizer. During this same time period, Bobby Kennedy was waging war against organized crime and had Hoffa in his sights. As attorney general, Kennedy even had a, quote, get Hoffa squad of prosecutors. 
Charges ranged from bribery, which he was acquitted of, to jury tampering, which he was convicted of, Mm -hmm. as well as a count of conspiracy, three counts of mail, uh, mail and wire fraud for improper use of the Teamsters pension fund. After years of unsuccessful appeals going all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, he began serving his sentence, which was 13 years, eight years for bribery, five for fraud in March of 1967. Prior to this, Hoffa had put Frank Fitzsimmons, who was the Teamsters vice president, in the position of, quote, acting president to the idea was he would just be a placeholder mm-hmm. until Hoffa got back. But Fitzsimmons had different plans. Of course he did. Of course he did. He started changing operations as well as kind of putting distance between himself and Jimmy Hoffa almost immediately. From prison, Hoffa finds out about this. Of course, he's pissed. He does the only thing that he can do as far as not basically to make sure that everybody knows that this isn't what he had planned. And he Mm -hmm. resigns as president in June of 1971. By July, Fitzsimmons had been formally elected president. And then December 23rd of that year, Nixon commuted Hoffa's sentence to time served and he was released with a condition. He was not to have anything to do with union organizing or with the Teamsters until 1980. There is some verifiable evidence in the form of recorded conversations that Nixon was in communication with Frank Fitzsimmons. Releasing Hoffa garnered favor for Nixon with the working class and more specifically with Teamsters who supported Nixon's reelection despite having supported Democrats in the past. It also, um, imposing the restriction on Hoffa's involvement in union work, protected Fitzsimmons' power. So you can imagine, I mean, the idea for Nixon that pardoning Hoffa, he had a deal with Fitzsimmons. I'm saying this like it's a fact. I'm not 100% sure that we know this is a fact, but the dots kind of connect themselves. Mm -hmm. Fitzsimmons had control of the Teamsters. The Teamsters are now a nationwide organization with over a million people including, to some extent, basically every truck driver in the U.S. So Fitzsimmons could promise all of those votes to Nixon. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, like I say, I mean, the the dots on that pretty well connect. Um, it's, ne- it's just never been, like, confirmed, but you can kind I don't of assume. Think, I don't think that there's anything that absolutely says Fitzsimmons bribed Nixon to release Hoffa in exchange for votes, but they're definitely talking to each other. Nixon is absolutely in favor of Fitzsimmons being the president um, as opposed to Hoffa because they feel like they have control over him. Um, Or at least they feel like they feel comfortable with him. Mm -hmm. Whereas Hoffa was looked at as not somebody that they could really work with. Like Fitzsimmons, once Hoffa was released He had other plans and fully intended to regain control of the Teamsters. But he had burned some bridges that he was going to have to deal with before he could do that. And he actually goes through the process of trying to sue to get the restriction lifted. And that doesn't work. They say Nixon has the right to tell him that he can't be involved. Um, But basically nothing matters. He's like he is. This is the thing he wants to do. And he's hell bent that he's going to get the Teamsters back. So. 
In the midst of all this, Hoffa had kind of turned on some of his mafia friends. For one thing, uh, Tony Provenzano was actually in prison during some of the same years that Hoffa was in prison. And there was some feud. They had been friends. Um, In fact, Provenzano was a VP of the Teamsters at one point. But while they were both in prison, there was some kind of feud that caused them to fall out with each other. Um, Were they in prison together? I don't think they were in prison together. They were just in prison at the same time. Okay. Hoffa had started publicly disavowing mob connections, as well as vowing to clean the organized crime elements out of the Teamsters once he's back in power. Oh, so he gonna die. Pretty much. (laughs) Um, he, He had tried to play both sides against the middle. And once he was released... It all caught up with him. Mm-hmm. And so this is what leads directly to Hoffa meeting with the Giacalone brothers. And at that meeting, setting the meeting for July 30th, 1975. So I said before that both the Tonys, Giacalone and Provenzano, who are also known as Tony Jack and Tony Pro. Because <laughs> of course they are. Kind of um, easier that way. They had solid alibis. But not only that. They both claimed to have never planned to have a meeting with Hoffa that day. And on top of that, their alibis are like, they're almost a little too solid. Like, what are the chances that you have something so, like, so verifiable and public to do on that specific day, that specific time? Tony Pro was playing cards in a union hall, I want to say in another state, I think in New Jersey. And Tony Jack was at a um, social club, like, making a point of being seen and talking to people. But regardless, they were absolutely nowhere near that Detroit restaurant when Hoffa disappeared from there. Yeah, and according to them, had they had no plans to they be. They had no plans to be, correct. Um, Tony Pro basically says, I had no intention of reconciling. And Tony Jack says, yeah, we had dinner with, with Hoffa the other day, a couple of weeks ago, but we didn't ever plan this. So the car, pretty much the only piece of evidence ever collected in this case was a maroon 1975 Mercury Marquis, which happened to belong to Tony Jack's son, Joe. The car happened to have been borrowed earlier that day by Chucky O'Brien, who was Hoffa's foster son and also kind of long time considered his right hand. Um, However, the two of them had kind of not been, their relationship had somewhat soured Mm -hmm. in the years preceding Hoffa's disappearance. So Hoffa's family, as well as investigators, had suspicions that O'Brien was involved with the disappearance. However, He claims he had borrowed the car because he was, believe it or not, delivering fish from wherever they were getting it to another mob-connected person Mm. who says, yeah, absolutely. Chucky was here. He brought the fish. Chucky makes a big point of telling him how the fish was in the back seat. It actually leaked. It had blood that had to be cleaned up. And the person he was delivering it to says, yeah, you know, it made a mess here, too. We, But, yeah, that's what happened. He brought us fish. It's real suspicious. When you start coming up with reasons that there's blood in the car before anyone asks. Yeah. yeah. And, like, it's it's really <laughs> su- it's suspicious and specific. 
so specific. Yeah. In August of 1975, police dogs identified Hoffa's scent in the car. In 2001, a strand of his hair was DNA matched. Again, once we have DNA and we start using it, uh, was matched to a sample that they had. So Hoffa was absolutely in this car. But because it belonged to a known associate and was borrowed by another known associate, it stands to reason he could have been in the car sometime prior to that. So there's no way to know when he was in this car. Um, And there's, again, no other evidence that this was the specific car. It was just, it was a maroon car. It was a Mercury, which is what the witnesses claim to have seen. Yeah. So I'm just going to list the majority. I think there may be some others, but I'm going to list the main mafia-connected suspects. Tony Jack, Tony Pro, Joe Pro, who is Joseph Provenzano, who's um, Tony Provenzano's son. Joe Pro. Joe Pro. (laughs) It's like a porn star name. (laughs) It totally does. And I didn't make these up. These were totally their nicknames. Oh, I totally believe it. Yeah. (laughs) Chucky O'Brien along with Stephen and Thomas Andretta and Salvatore and Gabriel Braguglio. In addition to all of those suspects who were all interviewed and all, I don't want to say they were cleared because I know that investigators pretty firmly believe that Hoffa was kidnapped and murdered by the mob. But they're not going to just go after the mob. Like I feel like, well, and they never found any, I mean, there was never any, they went at all of these people pretty hard, Mm -hmm. but there was never any actual evidence. Nobody admitted to having anything to do with it. None of these guys admitted to having anything to do with it. None of them had, there was no evidence other. I mean, there was some pretty sketchy evidence that maybe he had been, I mean, that he had been in that car at some point, Mm -hmm. But it could have been three days before this. They don't know. Two mafia-connected hitmen have claimed that they were the person who took Hoffa out. Frank Sheeran, who's known as the Irishman, and Richard Kuklinski, the Iceman. Kuklinski is a known exaggerator, and his claim is pretty largely dismissed by everyone close to the case. (laughs) Wait, what's his name? Richard Kuklinski. And he's (laughs) known as Iceman. I feel like everyone's like... Jesus fucking Christ, Iceman, shut up. Nobody believes you. <laughs> That's kind of how it is. He's a, I mean, he's a really well-known hitman, And mm-hmm. he's, if you've ever, have you ever watched an interview with him? No. He does interviews and he's the, he's so creepy because he just so like, he's so cold, hence Iceman, Iceman. about all of it. And he just like very matter of factly says, you know, oh yeah, I killed that person. Oh yeah, I killed that person. But apparently he's pretty prone to exaggerate how many people he's actually killed. Mm. So when he tries to claim credit for big names like this, and there's zero evidence of the things, like he basically just kind of piggybacks and says like, oh yeah, I was with, I was with the, I think he said that he was with the Berguglio brothers. And I actually even think he said there was somebody else, which makes four people, which is one person too many. So his claim is pretty much everybody. (laughs) People are just like, hmm. No, that's not, that didn't happen. Ignore Um, him. (laughs) Sheeran's claim seems to hold a little more weight, but there's no actual evidence. So again, why would you out yourself like that as a hitman? Sheeran literally, 
I want to say his was almost like a deathbed confession. Okay, that makes sense. Which is why, I think that's why maybe it does hold some weight, because, um, I mean, first of all, he knows all the right people. Second of all, you know, he was involved in all of this at the right times. Mm -hmm. So, up to a point, you kind of have to take him seriously. But on the other hand, nothing that he told them is, like, they haven't actually been able to get any evidence from anything that he said. Over the years, many, many, many tips from anonymous tips to things like Sheeran making claims to other mafia connected people piping in and saying, you know, Oh, this is where you can find Hoffa. Um, tons of tips have led to pretty big um, searches, investigations, excavations as recently as 2019. Where was the most recent one? I knew you were going to ask me that. I knew you were going to ask I want to know. I can't, I think the most recent one was um, at a farmhouse near Detroit. And it's one of the places, there are several places that people claim he might be. It's one of the places. And so they even claim that they actually misread. And I think this may have been Sheeran's Mm -hmm. evidence claim, whatever that led to that search. One person I saw actually says, well, they didn't even dig in the right place. They had the map turned around and they dug in the wrong place. That's totally where he is. They just dug in the wrong place, which I mean, I don't know. I guess that's possible. But I mean, they've been searching for him in and out of Detroit for 45 years. Wow. Um, nobody has ever been found. No evidence of Hoffa having ever been anywhere after he was at that restaurant has ever been found. So. So what we have is 45 years of theories, right? Oh, yes. I love theories. So the the prevailing theory pretty much by investigators is he was hit by the mob um, because at the time he disappeared, there was also money missing from the Teamsters pension fund. The theory is that the mob, and I'm just going to say the mob because I'm not sure anybody is even real clear on who they think. Like it could have been the Genovese, the the Genovese crime family, but it didn't have to be because he was involved with more than one group. So the prevailing theory is the mob took him out because he potentially could implicate them and they could no longer guarantee to their satisfaction that he was on their side and that he would be loyal. Yeah. Um. More specifically, the one that I've seen the most often is that he was driven to a farmhouse, maybe the farmhouse that they searched. That's where he was killed. He was immediately put into a 55-gallon barrel, put onto a truck, which was controlled by the Teamsters, Mm -hmm. um, which is really convenient when you're mafia and you own, like, all of the truckers. You can do anything you want. You can move anything you want from any place to any other place. I bet they did. So they think that what happened is they put him in a 55 gallon barrel, put him immediately on a truck that drove from Detroit to a landfill owned by the Braguglios in New Jersey. And that that's where he was disposed of. I could see that. Probably. That's probably what happened. Are there any um, theories, you're probably going to say this, but are there any theories that he just went into hiding? Okay. 
This is my theory. (laughs) (laughs) My pet theory is so, and so wait, let me, let me back up. Cause yes, that's my pet theory. I'm not sure. I'm sure at this point it's been 45 years. I seriously doubt that there's a theory that any of anybody could come up with that somebody else hasn't already thought of. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, of course, there's also, there are so many rumors about places that he might have been. There were buildings being built in downtown Detroit that there were claims made that that's, that he was, you know, basically buried in cement under one of the, you know, one of the pretty prominent buildings in downtown Detroit. In fact, there's at least two different people that say, claim that they heard um, mafia members kind of jokingly go, oh, say, say good morning to Jimmy, fellas, as they are walking into a building. Oh, shit. Um, one what building the, was it? I'm sorry. Um, let me see. I, there, there's more than one, and I'm not sure if it. I'm not sure if it's that there's more than one building mm-hmm. that he supposedly was buried under, or if it's just different people saying different buildings. Or I don't even know. Maybe that's the same thing. Um, one of the other things that. And this is the thing that I've heard. The Renaissance Center is the main one um, in downtown Detroit that they claim they've heard people say, yeah, say, say good morning to Jimmy or whatever. That's dark. The theory that it really is, which I I mean, part of me is like, that sounds for all the world, like people who know for sure that's not where he is. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Like. I feel like you wouldn't say that if you knew he was there, but if you knew for sure he wasn't, that's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, The thing that I remember having heard about for, I guess, forever is that he's buried under one of the end zones of Giant Stadium. But the Mythbusters guys actually took that on and did ground penetrating radar in all of the places that he's allegedly buried in that stadium and did not find any indication that there was any anomalies. I fucking love that show. It's so great. And I love that they do things like that. Cause, and I was, I mean, part of me was like, damn it. I really wanted him to be under the stadium. I'm not sure why. I just really did. Well, I mean, closure, first of all. Yeah. And it's like, so, I don't know. Unreasonably dramatic. Yeah. (laughs) For sure. Like you could put him anywhere, but you decided on under a stadium. <laughs> he's probably um, is he's probably somewhere in some kind of water. That is another thing that's come up. Several different people have said, "Oh yeah, well when you find him, he's gonna be good and wet." Mm. Um, there there's another um, and I don't I do not have this guy's name. He was kind of um, he was previously mafia, and then in his elderly years kind of decided to start talking about things that he shouldn't have ever been talking about as mafia. So he's pretty like his, all of his stuff is kind of like, like he was basically trying to make some money on things that he might or might not have actually known. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and one of his claims has been investigated and absolutely no evidence was found that indicates that he was correct about where Hoffa was. Some people claim, yeah, well, he used to be in this one place, but he's been moved since then. Um, There's one theory that I only heard about on, um, I actually, I watched the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode about Hoffa. Uh And they mention a theory that he 
was seen in South America with a go-go dancer. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. So, and I couldn't find, he said, and he said on the show that he just found it on message boards. I couldn't find that anywhere except for there. So I'm not sure. I mean, again, I figure there's as many theories as you could possibly want about what happened. But wait, real quick. I'm so sorry, but I have to say this. Have you seen the theory that Steve Jobs is still alive and he's living in South America? Because there's a picture. I did see that. But then I think I saw the explanation for that picture. Like it's a brother or. Oh, I didn't see that. Something. I want to say I saw something that was like, no, that's not a thing. Yeah, that would be. But I wouldn't be. I mean, I really wouldn't be completely surprised except for the fact that he had a long and pretty public battle Mm -hmm. with cancer. So this is true. This is true. Okay, go ahead. So, okay. So my, my pet theory, and I'm not going to say, I think this is what happened because I kind of think he was put in a 55 gallon barrel and onto a truck and to a landfill because Occam's razor, right? I have no idea what that is. Occam's razor just means that the simplest explanation is probably the right one. Okay. Yeah. So probably that's what happened. Yeah. But the one I think is kind of fun to think about is what if he realized that he was 100% stuck and he was never getting unstuck because he was never going to be able to be openly mafia connected to mafia anymore because there are too many reasons that they could potentially not trust him. Mm-hmm. And he's never going to be able to run the Teamsters again because in order to do that successfully, you, he has to work with the mafia. And again, he can't do that. Mm-hmm. He also can't take the Teamsters back and disavow the mafia because the mafia is going to take him out. In fact, while he, when he started saying things about clearing the mafia out of the Teamsters, um, he was told by multiple people, you need to stop talking and just go about your business. Like, just stop. That's it. Purportedly, Tony Pro said he was never going to reconcile with Hoffa. In fact, he threatened to pull his guts out and kill his grandchildren. Well, shit. Which is like, oh, you mad mad. (laughs) You're not just a little mad. You big mad. (laughs) You big mad. (laughs) However, I kind of think that sets up an opportunity. Like, he's... Clearly claiming I'm never going to have anything to do with him again. He says I was never going to this meeting. Tony Jack says, no, we were never having that meeting. But I feel like this is the perfect opportunity for everybody to make their problem disappear. They can disappear Hoffa, but they can guarantee his body's not going to be found if they don't kill him. And if he's on board with this, then he knows if he ever shows up, He's done. It seems to me like maybe they disappeared him with his cooperation. That's not a bad theory at all, especially if because you said he had wife and kids and grandkids and like he did if they were threatened and he right, you know, wanted them to stay safe. Mm-hmm. He's I mean, I'm sure he's dead at this point. No matter and what. Right. And that's kind of my thing about the fact that. One of the things that crossed my mind is like, well, what if he was actually in witness protection? But yeah. at this point, I think that that would have been declassified because he's, I mean, 
he's almost certainly dead. Mm-hmm. If he's not dead, I mean, he was born in, he'd be over 100. Wait, what year was he born? 1913. Holy shit. So. Do they I mean, declassify once people die in the witness I protection? No. I mean, it seems, I don't know that they always would, but it seems to me in this case, with it being such a huge high profile and it being such a like, I mean, there's still, investigators are still actively investigating tips. It seems like if that had been the case that they would have at least said, stop investigating tips. We, we had him the whole time and he's dead now. Yeah. But that is money and resources wasted, I guess. So anyway, I mean, so, so the end of the story is it's 45 years later and still nobody knows where Jimmy Hoffa is. I love to, I love that I finally got to hear the full story of that because I had always heard jokes being made about like, oh, well, we'll find that when they find Jimmy Hoffa or, right. you know, little cracks like that. But I was like, who yeah. the fuck is Jimmy Hoffa and where is he? Now Probably I know. Probably in a landfill in New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, it's one of those things that's been, I mean, it's such a pop culture thing. Yeah. There were even um, in several of the things that I watched, they showed um, how much of a pop culture thing it was. They had like the bumper stickers that said, where's Jimmy with the tip line. Oh my God. And I actually call, I called my parents cause I'm like, I need to understand the scope of this. Like mm-hmm. how big of a story was it basically? And how old are your parents? So my parents are, I always have to do backwards from my age. My mom is 70, will be 71 or maybe she is 71. They're in their seventies. Okay. They're in their seventies. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so in 75, they were married and living, I think still living in Austin. I don't think they'd moved to Houston yet. Okay. So Texas for sure. Um, both of them say that they 100% remember his disappearance and it was big news. And people definitely knew who Jimmy Hoffa was because he was a, a pretty, I mean, he was a recognizable person. Yeah. One of the things that I read, my my dad, so I was, and I also asked him, like, what was your impression? Like, did you think he was a bad person, a good person? Like, because there's two sides, right? Yeah. He's, in some people's perception, he's kind of a a newer version of an Al Capone kind of character. Mm-hmm. Totally corrupt, mafia connected, um, willing to do, you know, willing willing to commit violence, no problem. But on the other side he did a lot for labor unions and workers rights and was completely on the side of blue collar America. Like maybe he just got caught up in some shit. So my take on him as a person is that he saw that this is the way it worked. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to accomplish anything in his mind, you had to play the game. And I think that, you know, the further you get into it, like the more, you know, at first it's, you know, you, you get help from the mob to fight the union busters. Okay, fine. And then, you know, maybe you beat some people up. Yeah. Maybe you bomb a few trucks and then it just kind of, I feel like it just kind of snowballs. And now he's like deep into this shit as a total mobster, even though I don't know that I would say he was. Yeah. He was just connected. He wasn't actually like, he wasn't working for those families. He was just working with them. 
So both of my parents said that they would have said he was, he was a bad guy. Yeah. Even though, you know, he worked for unions and that wasn't really the issue. It's just, it's more the mob connection. Um, neither of them really remembered much about him other than knowing that he was um, the president of the Teamsters, which was, I, and still is mm-hmm. a huge labor union. So there was definitely news about him. And of course, when he was testifying for um, Bobby, Ken- the committees that Bobby Kennedy was on mm-hmm. trying to go after organized crime. So there was, enough buzz that he was a pretty big personality. So the news of him disappearing was like, it was nationwide news. People definitely knew it was happening almost immediately. Cause I was like, I mean, he's a guy, he's, you know, he's a guy who disappeared in Michigan. Like, Mm -hmm. was this really news in Texas or was it like three weeks later? They're like, by the way, this guy in Michigan disappeared. Yeah. But apparently it was really big news like immediately because he was so well known, which is why, I mean, you know, the people that, saw him in this parking lot, recognized him because he was a recognizable person. Right. The fact that, I mean, and then people, I mean, again, people saw him get into the car and leave and he got into the car. He probably had no choice. That's interesting too, because that's one of the things that they talk about, like who would he have gotten in a car with willingly? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, like he knew Frank Sheeran, so arguably he would have gotten in a car with Frank Sheeran. Yeah. Um, would he have gotten in a car with Chucky O'Brien? Probably. Foster son, somebody he'd, you know, taken under his wing, um, even though they had, you know, had kind of a rough patch in their relationship. But probably, at, you know, his family thinks he would have gotten in the car with him. So that's really the thing. And that's, that's what made me start thinking about, well, what if he got in the car? Because that was always the plan. Right. Right. What if everything else was the setup for him to disappear to protect himself, but also to protect his family? It's so crazy to think about. And it's crazier to think that we'll never know. I mean, we might, we, we could potentially I mean, it's know still one possible. day, but I mean, they're still investigating it. I mean, there's not, I don't think there's probably anybody in the FBI who would not love to solve this case and oh, have that sure. like as the feather in their cap. Oh, definitely. At this point, I mean, it's such a, a legend kind of. No one who worked on that case is still alive. I guarantee um, no one who was in, I don't think, you know, I don't know. There were, I mean, there were so many people who investigated that from the beginning. I mean, it's possible it was in 75. So 45 years ago, maybe, but probably not still police Yeah. or FBI or yeah. state police or any That's of the other people who were involved. Oh, there is an interesting tidbit that I kind of left out um, because I don't, it's interesting. It's not a big part of the story mm-hmm. because he was so oppositional with Bobby Kennedy. Um, there were rumors that he could have been involved in planning JFK's assassination. What? I don't I feel like think that's really far out there. To it. I mean, there is, you know, there are people who think that the mob took out JFK. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, but I feel like. I really hate your brother because he really hates me is not maybe the reason that you take out a hit on a president. <laughs> oh, we'll have to talk about JFK because I really like talking about that. Oh, we should. 
Mm-hmm. We definitely should. We could we could actually do that like to like we could split that and do that like as a joint effort instead of two different things. Yeah. Hey, um, I know that you like have a real job. Um, <laughs> are you still going to start the blog? Are you still going to do that? Yes. There's no really? rush on it because you do have a I real job. Know. I do. <laughs> and my real job is a little crazy sometimes. I know. It's got to be. Working from even working from home, I'm sure it's crazy. Really, it wouldn't be any different if I were physically there, except it would maybe be more frustrating sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, things this week was a little crazy. So I keep thinking like, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm totally going to do that. And then all of a sudden it's Saturday afternoon again. And I'm like, I have six loads of laundry to do. Like, <laughs> How do you have so much fucking laundry? You're one person. I know because it never gets completely done. I feel that. So which just like <laughs> now that uh, Rich is staying home because he he quit his job and um I think it was shit I think it was June he's been home since then so all this shit around the house is getting done. He's my little house husband. <laughs> That's amazing. I don't know that I would go that far like I wouldn't mind having one but on the other hand like could you just be here three days a week no I'm kidding that's I'm just joking <laughs> make sure to follow us on all of our social media our twitter is at wild and woke pod our instagram is at wild and woke pod and our facebook is just wild and woke podcast and check out our patreon we're gonna have the new mini episode that I'm doing on the lesser known cults which will be really really exciting that does sound like fun remember all stories start somewhere be wild stay woke and question everything okay bye bye